the final in our series on a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, and this, uh, these last few words here in this passage uh, reminds us that we always need to be uh, shaped in our thinking and our understanding and our living by the Word of God, uh, always coming back uh, to what God says. Uh, and that's uh, certainly true in this, this topic. It's something that I've uh, experienced as I've been preparing these sermons. I've, I've actually, I think I've had my view changed slightly uh, on this topic simply by studying the scriptures. It can be easy for us to kind of have in our minds a system or an approach and we impose that on the scriptures when we read them instead of letting the scriptures shape the way, the framework that we uh, we have. Last uh, week, we saw that Jesus uh, didn't abolish the Sabbath, but he transformed how we understand our observance of it uh, according to the spirit of the law, according to the great commands to love God and to love our neighbour. Uh, his criticism of the Pharisees they, was that they observed the Sabbath to the letter and they thought that they were, were loving God by keeping the Sabbath in certain ways, but Jesus exposed the fact that they didn't truly love God because they considered it unlawful to love their neighbour on the Sabbath. And so he said the, the law of love shapes, doesn't do away with the practice of the law, but it shapes the way we understand and the way we obey it. And our passage this morning uh, affirms that. Outside of the Gospels, this is uh, the, the key passage for understanding how the Sabbath command applies to us. We need to understand the, the context of this passage and the purpose of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to encourage Jewish Christians to stand firm in their faith in the midst of great pressure to go back to Judaism. It wasn't so much that they were revoking their profession of Christ, but they were thinking they could hold on to faith in Christ and continue to keep aspects of the Old Testament regulations that had been made obsolete by their fulfilment in him. Maybe they thought they could avoid persecution by the Jews because that's what they were facing by holding the two together. In fact, by trying to hold the two together, they were in effect denying the sufficiency of what Christ had done. So Hebrews 10.1 says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, he can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The laws of the temple sacrifices were a shadow of the cross, a shadow that reached back into history, into the past, pointing forward to the once for all sufficiency of the cross. So once Jesus had come and died and risen, the sacrifices along with everything associated with the temple had served their purpose and were no longer needed. And so Hebrews 
makes the point over and over again that Jesus is the better and greater reality than all of these Old Testament uh, elements. And we see that reasoning here in our passage in Hebrews 3 and 4. So we see that Moses was a shadow, verses uh, 16 to 19. Why? Because while he brought Israel out of Egypt, he wasn't able to cure their unbelief. And that generation that came out with Moses was unable to enter the rest of the promised land because of unbelief. Jesus, on the other hand, is the greater, better Moses who in the new covenant is able to do what Moses was unable to do. So then we might say, well, what of the next generation? Those born in the wilderness who did enter the land by Joshua. Well, we're also told that Joshua was also a shadow. Verse 8 says that Joshua didn't give them rest. That generation was unable to enter the rest of the promised land, meaning not all of it, but the rest that they were to experience in the promised land, again, because of their unbelief. Jesus, on the other hand, is the better, greater Joshua, who in the new covenant is able to do what Joshua was able to do. Long after Joshua, in Psalm 95, David spoke of another day, there in verse 7, called today, when the people hear God's voice and do not harden their hearts, but they look forward to entering God's rest. So Hebrews shows how Jesus has replaced various aspects of the old covenant. So Hebrews 8.13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. But then in the midst of these things that are obsolete, that are passing away, he tells us there is something that remains, that doesn't pass away, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, in verse 9. Now, did you notice, as this passage was being read, that this is the only time this word Sabbath appears, while the word rest appears in the passage 11 times. That's because the writer here wants us to understand what he's saying in a slightly different way. The Greek word is sabbatismos, which is a, a form of the word, and it, it's the only place in the whole Bible that it appears in this form, but it appears in other uh, non-biblical literature. It's, it's a word that refers to the observance of the Sabbath, not just the Sabbath itself. So it could be translated as, there remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God. And then we're told in verse 10, the reason why this observance remains. But it's unfortunate that translators of the modern Bible 
uh, modern English Bible have made a few assumptions about this verse and so they haven't translated it as literally uh, as other verses. They've taken the liberty of inserting the word God there, whoever has entered God's rest. In fact, it actually says whoever has entered his rest. And in fact, it's not really the word whoever either. It really says the one who has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. See, the translators of the English Bible, Bibles, uh, assuming that this verse is speaking of a Christian who enters God's rest. In fact, it's not speaking of us, it's speaking of Christ, the one who entered his rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. Do you remember what we saw in the first message in this series? Jesus completed the work of redemption on Friday as he called out, it is finished from the cross. He then entered the rest of the Sabbath on Saturday before inaugurating the new creation on the Sunday when he rose from the dead. This completed work of redemption echoed the completed work of creation. We could say that the work of creation preempted the future work of redemption. Remember how we saw that the two reasons that Israel were given for observing the Sabbath is that the Lord is their creator and the Lord is their redeemer. And we saw that they were combined in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus finished his work and entered his rest, which he now makes available to us. So here's a summary of the logic of uh, this passage. Uh, it was, you may have found as it was read, it's a little bit tricky to kind of follow uh, the logic of the passage and that's uh, maybe because Hebrews, it's thought, was originally a sermon uh, and someone, dutifully, as they were hearing the sermon being preached, uh, was writing it down and so it's it kind of reads more as someone who's speaking than someone who's sitting down and writing. But here's a summary of uh, what this passage, Hebrews 3, uh, 6 through to 4, 13, uh, is saying to us about the Sabbath. Firstly, Israel were to keep the Sabbath as they came out of their toilsome slavery in Egypt and they travelled through the wilderness and as they anticipated entry into the land where they were to know the rest from their slavery that the Lord had promised. However, that generation didn't see the rest because they didn't believe and so they died in the wilderness. Then, when they did enter the land, they didn't experience full rest, again, because of their continuing unbelief. They so they were to continue to keep the Sabbath, remembering that they were only in the land because they'd been rescued from the place of slavery by God's grace. And as they look forward to the day of which David spoke, when 
the rest would be full and complete. Now, as Christians who know that Jesus is the reality of which all of that is a shadow, we, we now live in an in-between time, in, in a sense, in the way that the Israelites lived in an in-between time. But we live between the old covenant and the new creation. We know that the work that Jesus has done in accomplishing our salvation has been finished and so we don't look back to the exodus from Egypt for our assurance, we look back to the exodus of the cross for our assurance. And we know that Jesus' resurrection gives us the guarantee that he will fulfil the promise of a new creation, the new creation which was prefigured by the promised land. We know that there we'll know the fullness of the joyful rest of God. But that fullness of rest for us still is not yet, so we still look forward to it. Therefore, something remains, the Sabbath principle, the Sabbath observance, as a regular reminder for us of what has been done for us by Christ, and of the sure hope that we have. The Sabbath remains then as something that we observe. It it will only be in the new creation that this idea of a seven-day Sabbath cycle will no longer be needed because we will stand in perfection. We'll see him face to face. We will, so to speak, be living forever then in the seventh day of the new creation because of all the all the toilsome labour of life under the curse and under sin in this world and death itself will be done away with forever. In this age, we walk by faith, not by sight. We view things as in a dim mirror instead of face to face. We know only in part instead of knowing fully just as we are known ourselves. And so... We still need things that feed our faith and remind us of the sure hope we have. We still need things to pull us back into line when we're prone to wander, to remind us when we so quickly forget, to still our hearts when we give over to anger uh, and fear and anxiety. We need tangible signs to point us to the spiritual realities that are ours in Christ. As we heard from the children's talk this morning, that's why we celebrate communion regularly. It's a tangible, multi-sensory act that brings us back to the reality of Christ. As often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, 1 Corinthians 11 says. We look back to the finished work of the cross and we look forward to the yet-to-be-finished work of the new creation. Now, when Jesus comes, that simple rite of communion will come to an end. But until he comes, we continue to observe it. Well, similarly, we continue to observe the Sabbath because it does the same thing for us. 
We come to hear afresh the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has redeemed us by his blood. And we come to encourage one another to stand firm in our sure hope of the day of the Lord. By taking a break from work, which is still often toilsome, by coming out of our regular situation and our routine to gather together as God's people, we're regularly reminded and grounded and pointed forward to the full rest that is to come. What then does Sabbath observance look like for Christians? We've talked a lot about what it meant for the Jews and I've hinted last week about some things that it means for Christians. Now this is where we have to tread very carefully because it can be so easy at this point to slip into legalism, to be like the Pharisees and there's been no shortage of legalism in the church over this issue. I was just uh, hearing recently a story from I think a, a couple of centuries ago but it was in Scotland uh, where a, a minister, it was in the middle of winter and uh, one morning, Sunday morning, the minister who lived by the river saw the river was frozen over and he thought well, my house is by the river and the church is by the river, so this morning I'm going to skate to church because he liked skating. So he got out of his ice skates and he skated to church. And so he was there uh, with his skates under his arm as people were arriving at church. Uh, there was a meeting called after the service by the elders to question whether or not it's appropriate for the minister to skate to church. And there was a bit of debate back and forth and it came down to this question, well, did he enjoy skating to church? If he did, he shouldn't have done it. Legalism robs joy, but the Sabbath is about joy. It's about celebrating. It's about uh, enjoying uh, God's finished work of creation and redemption. We saw last week that the core command for Sabbath observance was very simple. Leviticus 23.3 says the Sabbath was to be a holy convocation, being called out from the regular routine of work and to gather together as a holy people to hear God's word, to recall his mighty acts in saving and making us his people, to pray and to meet one another's needs. We also saw that Jesus stripped away from the Sabbath all of the pharisaical legalism of all the extra rules that had been added to the Sabbath commands, which had turned the Sabbath into a heavy burden instead of a delightful rest. And so he called people to come to him to have these burdens, the burdens of legalism, removed from their shoulders, to take on his yoke, which is easy and light. Now, we also know that under the new covenant, the people of God, as the writer of Hebrews describes us, we're no longer a national ethnic group, as the Jews were, whose obedience to the law is defined by how they practice it as a nation, 
with all the civil laws that came along with being a nation. And that means that in the spirit of what Hebrews says about the old being replaced with the new, our observance of the Sabbath as the church in Christ is no longer defined by all of those civil regulations. We have a liberty now in Christ to obey the Sabbath principles without being bound then by heavy, complex rules. So what remains then of the Sabbath for the church? It is that principle of Leviticus 23.3. God's people gathering together on a regular basis in order to hear God's word, to work together, to encourage one another, to meet one another's needs, to together celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and together to speak to God in response to him speaking to us in prayer. That's what we saw the first Christians doing, wasn't it, after the day of Pentecost. They, the things that they devoted themselves to, meaning they weren't just incidental things that just happened uh, sporadically or temporarily, they made a deliberate and conscious effort to see that those things took place. So that's why later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, we see these words, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. To draw here draw near here, speaks of coming before the throne of God, just as the priests would go into the holy place. So there's a a personal assurance that I can at any time come into the presence of God. But notice that it's a corporate action. It's let us. We do it together, not just in the privacy of our individual hearts. We draw near to him as a family to worship and pray with the confidence that the Father welcomes us in because of his Son. We're told, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's that word confession. Remember we looked at that uh, many weeks ago. This word that means speaking the same word. It's not just my personal belief about my personal hope. It's speaking together with one another of our hope, the hope that we share in Christ, that we know through hearing and believing the Word of God. We're told to let us, uh, let, uh, let us consider how to stir one another up, stir up one another to love and good works. Well, here's the good works that we do for one another in service of one another and in service of the world around us, both in practical acts but also in the greatest act of love you could ever show a person, which is to tell them about the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, love and good works. And we're told to not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Obviously, 
all those things he's just called us to cannot happen if we're neglecting the gathering, the holy convocation of the people of God. And see how this all points forward to the day. What day? The ultimate, the ultimate Sabbath day, the seventh day of the new creation when God's work of bringing about the new heavens and the new earth will be finished and we'll we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, the joy of God's rest. Now, the moment we add anything to this simple command, extra do's and don'ts, we start the slippery slope into legalism. I want to mention a couple of things that the New Testament doesn't command us in regard to the Sabbath. Firstly, it's not stipulated on which specific day in the week we are to gather to do these things. That's most likely what Paul is addressing when he says in Colossians, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And then in Romans, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. So he's not, he's not saying uh, the Sabbath doesn't matter. He's picking up on those who say, well, it has to be on this specific day in the week because there's a day in the week that is somehow better than other days in the week. Now, we know that from very early on, Christians made the first day of the week, which came to be called Sunday, as the day to gather. And the precedent for that was that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day. He appeared to his disciples as they were already gathered on that Sunday. And John makes a point in his Gospel of saying it was on that day, the first day of the week, that Jesus appeared. And it was a week later, on the following Sunday, that Jesus appeared especially for Thomas, who hadn't been there the week before. Jesus could have appeared to him on Monday, couldn't he? But he chose to wait a week and appear again as they gathered on the first day of the week. We also know that it was on the first day of the week, 49 days later, that the Holy Spirit fell on those who were gathered on the day of Pentecost. So, because, as I said, Christians don't look back to the exodus from Egypt, but to the real exodus of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first day of the week seems to be the most appropriate day on which to gather. So, while it's not a command, we, we stand in the flow of a good precedent set for us by our brothers and sisters in that first generation of believers who were responding to these eyewitness experiences of the risen Jesus and who were living in the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We're also greatly blessed to be living in a time when Sunday still provides us the ideal opportunity to gather. That's why the other great Sabbath activity of sport has gradually taken over Sundays because it's the day when, generally speaking, most people are free. And since everyone loves the weekend, I think it's very unlikely that Sunday will ever revert to a regular workday. So while we have this wonderful privilege, this wonderful opportunity, why would we not seek to make the most of it to express our identity as the people of God? Martin Luther puts it this way, and I, I don't actually agree exactly with everything that Luther says about the Sabbath, but I think what he says here is, is good. But this, I say, isn't restricted as it was among the Jews to a particular time, so that it must be precisely this day or that, for in itself no one day is better than another. Actually, worship ought to take place daily. Because Sunday has been appointed for this purpose from ancient times, it shouldn't be changed. Things may be done in an orderly fashion and no one create disorder by unnecessary innovation. This then is the simple meaning of this commandment. Because we observe the holidays anyhow, we should use them to learn God's word. Do you know we get our word holiday from holy day? A holiday is a day set apart to be different to the other days on which we do things differently. And if we understand the true meaning of holy, it's in a way that honours God. And thanks to the influence of the gospel on the world, people see the value of having a weekly holiday to rest from our work and to do things that the normal regime of work wouldn't allow us to normally do. People are even prepared to be legalistic about weekends. We demand to have our rights not to work. We complain or, or employers complain because they have to pay penalty rates for those who have to work on a Sunday. The world observes a Sabbath, even if they don't call it that or realise where it came from. What a wonderful opportunity then for us to use this wonderful gift from God for his glory then, both encouraging one another and sharing and proclaiming our hope, being lights in the world by showing the world what it means to really know the true rest that comes from God. Secondly, there's nothing in the New Testament about whether we can go to the shops, catch public transport, conduct business, or do things that technically fall under the banner of work. That's not only because of our freedom in how we obey the command, but also because the grace of the gospel transforms how we view work. Verse 11 in our passage makes this curious statement, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I say curious because the word strive can also be translated make every effort or even work hard. How can we work hard to enter the rest when rest is supposed to be ceasing from work? 
was because the Sabbath command contains an element which is often overlooked. The command covers not just the seventh day of rest, but the six days of work. On six days you shall work, and then on the seventh day you shall cease from your work. Work is a good gift from God, just as rest is. The Sabbath isn't escaping from a bad thing. It's a good partner to a good thing. Work and rest fit together, and each brings a blessing to the other. Now, under the curse of sin, work became toilsome labour, a necessity of life done simply to survive, ending in futility when we return from the dust to which we, from which we came and the ground that we worked hard to try and produce our food until finally the ground swallows us up. Under sin, the Sabbath ends up being simply a chance to try and recover from our toil and to take a quick breath before stepping back into the treadmill of work and life. Under the grace of the gospel, as we see in Jesus' teaching and in his actions, we're free from the curse. We're renewed in our hearts and our spirits to delight in the law of God. And so we see, as he said, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In another place, when he was accused of breaking the Sabbath, he said, my father is working to this very day and I too am working. This transforms work from something self-serving to something neighbour-serving. Work now has a purpose and a goal beyond just putting food in our stomachs and making our life comfortable so that we can live another day. Work is now about love. My reason for working is no longer to get paid, but to serve. A Christian employee can see their job as an opportunity to do good to all, whether it's their boss or their colleagues, those whom they manage or supervise, their customers, their clients, in fact, anyone who directly or indirectly will benefit from the work they do. It's no accident that government employees are called public servants. Retail employees perform customer service. People in the food and accommodation industry work in hospitality. These are ideas, again, that have been shaped by the Christian ethic that says you work for the good of others, not for your own good first. If you're currently working, is that how you see your job? As an opportunity to glorify God by loving your neighbour? If you're retired, how do you view your retirement? Is it an opportunity to now start living for yourself? albeit in a more relaxed, more focused way, or an opportunity to continue to give and to love and to serve those around you, to keep working for the good and well-being of others. The transformation of our work ethic by the freedom of grace shapes then how we think about what we do on Sunday, if Sunday is the day of Sabbath for us. Not as a list of do's and don'ts, but as an opportunity to serve and to love. 
We should prioritise meeting together as God's people to do that for one another. There may be times that love for our neighbour in our job means that we take a rostered shift on a Sunday or we fill in for someone who's sick or we work the extra hours that are required to get something done so that we're not disadvantaging others. Or it may be that a neighbour or a friend or a family member or a colleague is in need and Sunday provides the only opportunity to help, even if it means you miss church on that occasion. The law of love shapes the way that you observe the Sabbath. There may be some key event in which there's the opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ and to have opportunities to speak of the hope you have to people which falls on a Sunday because it was organised by non-believers who don't think that it would be a problem for their friends and that it would clash with church. The grace of the gospel gives us liberty, free from condemnation and judgement, to no longer live for ourselves but to live for him who died and who lives for us. And it's a freedom that gives us a joy to obey his commands, including the Sabbath command. And a freedom to have the law of love then shape the way that we obey. I know of a number of Christians who have given up on church. They've caved into the individualistic, self-gratifying culture in which we live. By doing so, they're not only missing out on the blessing of being a member of the body of Christ and all that comes from being part of a family that gathers regularly to be family, they're also neglecting the solemn call to be God's holy people, to be different to the world, to be a light shining in a dark place, to be a sanctuary and a refuge where Christ the Lamb is our lamp a beacon where people can flee to find the rest of faith and forgiveness and hope. So, as we're told in our passage, let's strive to enter the rest by being the people that he's called us to be. Let's let this pattern of regularly meeting as God's people to hear his word, to respond in prayer, to spur one another on to love. Let that shape our whole life and to flow out into how we live Monday to Saturday, a life that's infused with hope and meaning and purpose as we look forward to the appearing of Jesus. Let's pray.